0: Welcome to Hidden God, a podcast where we explore issues of theology and culture provided by Tulsa Bible Church. If you'd like more information, check out our website at tulsabible.org. Welcome back to Hidden God, where we explore issues of theology and culture I'm here with our co-host Daniel Newberry. Daniel, hey, hey! I'm not going to talk about the election today. What? Just not going to do it.
1: But it's so much fun. We can make fun of people, and uh, no, we're not going to do that. No, Now
0: There's so many better things to talk about, such yeah. as lunch. Hmm. Hung? Do you ever get like massive hunger pains?
1: Oh, every night. Yes. Every, it's, every it's, night. It's weird. Well, lately, it's been really weird because it'll be about midnight. And that's when Rachel and I go to bed. And we're like getting ready for bed, going to bed and then suddenly I'm just starving, man. <laughs> and nothing, nothing can satisfy the hunger. I'm cooking up waffles and I'm even making eggs and I'm in sausage, I'm eating, I'm trying, I'm trying, you know, breakfast food and I'm trying to yeah. but I'm just I'm still hungry. Yeah. It's it's been a pain lately. So it's, it's funny you bring that up.
0: Yeah. I d- when I get like super hungry I mean, all reason goes to the side. Mm-hmm. All niceties about me are like oh. tossed out, man. I'm like the... You go hangry. I'm a rage monster. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot talk to me right now. Like, I need to shove food in my mouth. And when I'm done, I will tell you when I'm ready. I do that, man. Yeah.
1: I do that. Sometimes I'm just in a bad mood and Rachel's like, what is wrong with you? And so we go get food and I'm fine. Yeah. After we get a good taco bueno or something, I'm good to go.
0: Bueno. Bueno. It's Halloween candy at our house right now. Mm. Like, gonna need a couple Snickers. Mm-hmm. You need to hold that thought. Snickers. Otherwise, I'm bound to rip your head off. Basically, <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're not you when you're happy, When you're, when you're hungry, man. That's I know. what it is. Totally somebody different.
0: <laughs> Interesting stuff. Yeah. Anyway, late lunch today just got me thinking about food. Mm-hmm. It's good stuff.
1: Well, you know, I'm going to go ahead and just tell the listeners right now. Jared is sitting here with a Chick Fil A sandwich mm. in his hand. <laughs> so, it smells if you so hear good. It, if you're smacking on his end of the mic, that's that's what that is. I'm gonna I'm gonna I perform. Yeah. Sorry,
0: I'm gonna perform miracles over here. <laughs> it's all it's all good. We've been talking about um, cultural crisis, and we've mm-hmm. gone through three parts of this. Last week, of course, we had Maddie Boltinghouse in. Mm-hmm. Awesome to talk to her.
1: Yeah. A lot of fun.
0: By the way, it's good stuff. We're on YouTube there for video if you want to chime in and see that. But we want to pick back up in part four of our cultural crisis study and series and talk about contextualizing the gospel just a little bit. But to open this up, I think this is the illustration I've heard before. I want to share it. I think it's really good. If I was going to share the gospel with somebody today, I would do it totally different than with somebody, say, like 40 or 50 years ago. Oh, for sure um for my parents for instance if i shared the gospel with my parents i could say something to the effect of um it, probably lead the conversation to you think you're a pretty good person but you're really not that good of a person mm-hmm. right so um do you do you see the need for a savior mom and dad do you um do you ever think about like the things that you do that are really displeasing to god you mm. know have you ever told told a lie before well, yeah, of course. I've told a little white lie here, or there, or something like that. Have you ever stolen anything before? Well, no. I've I'm not like going to a bank and stealing, but yeah, you know, I've stolen time. I've stolen uh, ideas, whatever it might be. Right. At the end of the day, there's a conviction with them that they've done something, even though they claim to be good. They're really not that good. Mm-hmm. Now, if I say, "Hey, you're not really a good person to people today." what's what's their first response going to be
1: can you define good
0: yeah what, what do you mean in, in the eyes of who right compared to hitler mm-hmm. i'm a pretty good guy
1: mm-hmm. right but compared to
0: the other people maybe not so much so so you have no universal understanding of what good is instead to evangelize somebody today i might say something like you know what man you find you, you spend a lot of time looking at the wall street journal and your stock stock numbers and it, it seems like you're in a really good mood when your retirement account's doing great. Right, You're in a really awful mood when it's doing bad. Like, is there something, are, are you like really, is your identity connected to how you're going to perform in the stock market or you just lost your job, man, and everything else is falling apart in your life? Like, do you think your job had a place in your life that was more important than mm-hmm. basically everything else? That's where your identity was, your significance was, right? all that other stuff. And, and you could approach the gospel from a standpoint of you're doing all these other things for your significance, your identity, and your security, when in reality, the only place you're going to find like a, a good, never changing, totally secure identity is in something outside of yourself. Right. It's, it's by looking to a savior outside of yourself who can do for you what you can't do and and that's totally different reframing the gospel in those terms instead of like my my parents generation it's a totally different generation
1: yeah very different and, and one way to describe what you're talking about here is through the word, Contextualization. Um, again, you know, like we've mentioned in the past, we're referring a lot back to Tim Keller and his book, Center Church, and he spends a large chunk of the time talking about contextualization and what it is. And the bottom line is we must contextualize the gospel to unbelievers. And contextualization is basically just knowing the context of the culture and then applying that understanding right. to ministry. Right. right, and so it's often very confusing. Contextualization is not giving people what they want to hear. You think of a lot of prosperity gospel preachers. They are just taking what is in the current culture and then just giving it back to the culture and, and saying this is scriptural. It's just that that's, that's not what contextualization is. Contextualization is giving people answers from scripture that they may not want to hear in language and forms that they can understand. So, recognizing questions or um, ways of of going about just regular dialogue and conversation in today's culture, recognizing those and then answering that with the truth of the gospel, with scripture. People who engage contextualization, they understand that, that many listeners who reject the gospel are not or simply haven't heard it or understood it in terms of their own culture. Now, of course, every, anyone who's going to accept the gospel is going to believe in Christ. That's all but done by the work of the Holy Spirit. But we can't just say, well, man, I threw the gospel at them and they didn't want it, so I'm not to blame here. Truthfully, I mean, yes, the Holy Spirit's the one who does the work, but have you taken the time to figure out what their culture is like and how to talk to them through their own culture? It's possible they simply didn't understand what you were giving them.
0: Right, and and everybody has a specific context in which they live, right, breathe, and have their being. So, to to make the gospel understandable is one of the great calls of every other of, of every pastor. Yeah, anybody who wants to live, anybody to lead anybody to Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting. In the time that I had in seminary, I was five years, master student at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I did get my master's degree by the way. (laughs) Thanks for mentioning that. Just in case you're wondering (laughs) um, we never like contextualization was never a conversation that ever came up. Hmm. We had mission studies that we took, classes, courses but this word this concept in and of itself defined this way is not something that came up in regularly in conversations, lectures even the reading that we were doing so even coming across it now it's new for me to look at the gospel and approaching the culture through this lens differently, at least with a different kind of concept. And it, and it just makes sense. Um, everybody lives in a specific context. So, so Paul and Jesus, when they ministered the gospel in their ancient Near Eastern first century context, they were using language, metaphors, symbols that the people understood that they could wrap their minds around in order to see their need and an answer to that, need the solution to their problem through the truth of the gospel. So so Jesus doesn't go around saying like, you know, you filthy sinners, you need to use this hu- huge biblical vocabulary, right? Like violators of God's command, you need the penal substitutionary atonement <laughs> of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Right. Right. You don't see like, you need spiritual reconciliation uh, through holiness and the imputation of the internal God, man. Like even even, you don't see them saying that mm-hmm. to a Gentile audience. You don't. Um, you don't even think that that would make sense right. to anybody who has never seen Scripture or studied theology at all. And so, what we do is we have to take those rich theological concepts of reconciliation, and penal substitution, and the atonement, and communicate them in a way that people can can understand mm-hmm. and really wrap their minds around. Uh, as they respond to the gospel.
1: Absolutely. And so, like you were saying a minute ago, this definitely applies to pastors. Every pastor must consider this. So so let's talk about this in terms of communicating the gospel. After all, as pastors, and, and you're one with a master's degree, as you mentioned, our number one... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I just want to remind everybody, our number one <laughs> responsibility, um, our, our first responsibility is to preach and to live the gospel. Today's Progressively secular culture, I don't think anyone's going to argue with this, no one no longer recognizes biblical words and concepts, especially the vocabulary of sin. And and exactly what you're saying, Rachel is always telling me, she's like, you know, we we got to stop using words like sin and sanctification and stuff. And like, wow, that's all true. And we can use that like within the body I mean, if I'm talking to a non believer about sanctification, they don't even know what that means. Exactly. You know? And and you know, yet you're spot on. And so the question is, how do we communicate sin without unbelievers totally checking out or or assuming that the speaker is out of touch with times and, and tradition?
0: Yeah. And another really key thing to think about is how can you communicate it in a way where you don't come across as spiritually elite, yes, and overly pious for another person. The, the last thing you want to come across as is this religious figure who cannot communicate to the common man, mm-hmm. to the common person. That's just Reformation theology is is all over that. Yeah. But sin must be addressed in a way that people can understand it and be convicted by it. So, mm. so we have to enter the culture challenge the culture and appeal to the culture and each of those steps is extremely critical and crucial and it the order of the steps is also important um you can't begin to challenge a culture cultural authorities institutions people that live in that culture if you don't first enter it and understand how it functions and what their thoughts are Hmm. it'd be totally uh um this would be the kind of like the John the Baptist prophetic voice that enters into it. And everybody's kind of like, what's up with that guy? Like <laughs> chill out a little bit on the street corner, man. Right. I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's okay. We can have a relationship and talk about these things instead. But the key concept that I always go back to in, in framing the gospel in a contextualized context for us today in America is this concept of idolatry and talking with my neighbors. The the one illustration that I have to, uh, to kind of back this up is we have, uh, people that in our lives that we constantly pray for, share the gospel with. And every time we have an opportunity, pray for those opportunities, seek wisdom and speak truth into them. And, you know, I can't go up to my neighbor and say, like, you're a sinner. You need God so that you can be justified Mm. from the, from his wrath. Right. But I've had these conversations where they come and they tell me like, man, I just lost my job. Um, one guy lost his job with a, a company. He was selling goods um, like frozen frozen meat guy, those Schwans trucks mm-hmm. that come around and all those other things. He lost his job. And before he got a new job with UPS, he just started cutting grass to make money for his family. He's got three kids. He's wow. got to feed he's just pouring his heart out to me and just like totally down in the dumps. Right. Right. So if I reframe his need for God in the context of idolatry, Mm -hmm. I could easily say, man, you can't be so connected to your career that it becomes an idol for your life. Hmm. And the second that you know it might be an idol in your life is when everything else falls apart. If you lose that one thing, Mm -hmm. right? So if you lose your marriage and your entire life falls apart because of it, you might have had your spouse on a pedestal where God should only be, right? And the way that we respond and the fears and the angers that we experience can surface those idols, but idolatry is one of those concepts people, I believe, can wrap their mind around.
1: That's a really, really great illustration, because, you know, when we talk about sin in terms of idolatry, we're accomplishing two things, and and you brought both of these out in this illustration here. The first of those is that we produce an image that people can understand. Suddenly sin becomes personal because people may say, you know, well, you say, you talk about sin. I don't really even, I don't struggle with sin. Uh, Like Scott Susong, we were talking with him about this earlier. He said, I think of a sinner. I think of someone on death row. You know, I'm not one of those guys, you know, but when you, you bring it out as an idol, suddenly the sin becomes personal. And the second thing you accomplish is that we reframe the conversation toward a very important concept, which is worship, you know? Worship happens outside of the church as well. It happens not just on Sunday mornings, worship happens every single day in our lives, right? right. So whatever you love the most is the thing or, or the person you worship the most. At the core of every human being is, is not what a person or th- is thinking or feeling, but rather what that person is worshiping. And so, like, you know, this kind of makes me think of Rene Descartes. I think, therefore I am. Right. Well, in this context, I worship, therefore I am. It's the core of who you are. Right.
0: Yeah, the, everything was reframed around rationality in the mind mm-hmm. with that philosophical thinking, which still exists today. Mm-hmm. You know, the most important thing about me is not what I do, it's how smart I am. Right. What I can contribute to society through, through my wisdom, in that respect and and yeah you're absolutely right uh if we can talk about idols and lead to this idea of worship it will do so many things for us these concepts will unleash ideas of religion in the heart of every single person religion it's not just some people are religious right. and some people are irreligious no everybody is religious it's what are you religious about mm-hmm. it reveals what we cling to it re- reveals what we love the most the things that we're deeply connected with the strongest, our fears, our safeties, our priorities. Coronavirus is, is a great example. You began to see a lot of people that held health and healthcare care as an idol because all of a sudden we've got a virus that we can't defend hmm. through our healthcare system. The hospitals are being overrun. What's going to happen if I ever need care? Well, Probably the same thing that's going to happen at the end of your life anyway, you know, <laughs> right. death and, you know, <laughs> ailments, pain, suffering. I don't mean to make light of any of those things, of course. but it does. It reveals idols, idolatry. Hmm. Give me a couple definitions here. One is from Martin Luther. He said that idolatry is whatever your heart clings to and relies upon. Hmm. And I love another commentator said an idol is whatever claims the loyalty in your heart that belongs to God alone. Tim Keller, uh, Counterfeit Gods, he says, an idol is anything that is more important to you than God, anything that you seek to give to you, what only God can give, right? Mm-hmm. So so this concept, it's not just that idols are everywhere, because mm-hmm. I think people would agree that's the case in the world. It's that idols can be anything even good things yeah. can be idol idols. Your job, your bank accounts, your retirement accounts, your cars, your house, whatever, your friendships, mm-hmm. your your marriages—all of that can be an idol if it's not loved less than God is loved.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. All human beings—you know, you take that from—you know—you have where you have an idol, you have worship, and so all human beings are created to worship. It's our very nature. You put an idol in front of us, we will begin to worship. You give us something we can worship, we're going to do that, you know, and very often it's not going to be God. Um, Paul Tripp said, worship is not something we do, it defines who we are. It's it's at our, like we said earlier, at our very, very core. Uh, contrary to the thoughts of an atheist, you cannot divide humanity into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships. It depends on it just depends on like you're saying what you worship like Keller said you know rely on what you're relying on to give you only yeah. what God can give you.
0: Yeah. And and idolatry is is not just the physical handheld idols that mm-hmm. you often talk about it's Ezekiel talks about idols of the heart. Right. And Calvin talked about we as human beings our hearts are idol factories. Mm-hmm. We mass produce these idols. So and it, you know if that's true Let's reframe this now and get back to contextualizing the gospel right. and talking about sin. We have to take that step to understand sin and in the context of idolatry, in the context of worship, that sin itself is worshiping or serving someone or something else rather than God. Mm-hmm. Um, again, yeah, Paul Tripp's book is, is excellent here. He says, stolen worship is at the core of what is wrong with people. Hmm. Right, and and if we can get that and understand that, that's certainly where Romans chapter one goes. Yes, in his understanding of sin, there
1: absolutely Romans one uh, specifically like eighteen through twenty five is a classic passage on the idea of worship and and worshiping the wrong things. If you don't mind, I'll just read through that for us really quick, yeah. starting in verse eighteen. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their own righteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, that is, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what He has made. As a result, people are without excuse, for though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four footed animals, and reptiles. And this is where it gets really good. Therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of a God for of God for a lie. And worshiped and served what has been created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. So you have these people who should most certainly know who God is. He has revealed himself to them, but they've instead denied him and exchanged what they know to be true instead for what they want to serve instead. You have that idol worship again. And in bringing this back to contextualization, just because you get in, you you start to understand the culture and explain the gospel through the lens of the culture doesn't mean that people will accept God and believe in him and follow him. But our job really is to make sure they understand what they're suppressing, what they're exchanging the truth for.
0: Yeah. Sin is blind. Right. Right. So people, people don't know it. It's subtle. Mm-hmm. Its influence slowly comes in, and, and before long, you're a monster that mm-hmm. has been totally controlled by something outside of yourself. Yeah, and, and you see in that Romans 1 passage, you know, exchanging the glory of God for an immortal God, images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. That's that's idolatry. Yeah, Nobody would look at that verse and say anything but hey. What Paul is describing there is idolatry, Mm -hmm. but when he takes it a step further, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, and worshiping and serving the creature, that's that tells you that the sin of idolatry is not some people worship and some people don't. Like you were saying, Mm -hmm. everybody worships. Right. The question is just who or what you're worshiping, and then we contextualize the gospel and sin. You say like, wow it really seems like you're worshiping this aspect of life that is eating you alive Mm -hmm. right now. And so if you worship beauty, you will spend the rest of your life trying to look the best you can putting on an appearance. And eventually when your beauty wanes and then when it wears out as you get older, it will eat you alive. You will not know how to function or who you are. If you worship money, You'll do everything in your power to get more and more money. Eventually, the process of doing that will turn you into the most greedy person mm-hmm. who is unwilling to have any healthy relationships because of an all-consuming consumption for more money. You know, yes. it's these things that we put glory in cannot sustain what only God can with his glory. So, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's where, where Paul will get in Romans. And it's just so important to to bring that dimension of sin into our evangelism. Absolutely. Into this culture. Absolutely. So let me just finish with a couple points here. These would be quick. Um, before you can challenge the culture, take time to enter into it. Analyze it as much as you can. Identify with people and show that you're interested in who they are mm-hmm. before you confront these idols that they have in their
1: lives. Absolutely. And the second would be to, the best way to enter the culture is... Through personal relationships, um, you can read as many books and studies about culture as you like, but you're going to find that, truthfully, the best way to get to know uh, what people, uh, the context of their culture, is to get to know the people themselves.
0: It's it seems so elementary to just say people don't care what you know, right, until they know that you care. Exactly. Doing life, friendships walking through life with your friends, mm-hmm. your, your neighbors, your family is really the best way to enter that culture. And then finally, contextualize the gospel in a way that people can understand. Our job as pastors is to take this rich, deep truth of the gospel that will never, ever exhaust the beauty of it. And explain it in terms that somebody can understand, grasp it, and hopefully the Holy Spirit will work, work on their heart mm. and bring them to a knowledge of truth of, through the Savior Jesus. But we have to be very uh, wise, intentional, and strategic with that if we expect to have any kind of influence on their hearts.
1: For sure. Man, your master's degree is showing there.
0: Five years, man. I five. squeezed four years into five. <laughs> Woo. It was a task
1: doing what only so few can. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Little shout out to Dallas Seminary, man. There you go. The old alma mater. <laughs> Loved my time in Dallas, but anyway, we're uh, we're heading out this weekend, going to see some old friends. Oh, that's fun. So that's cool. Should be pretty exciting.
1: That'll be a good time. I can't even think of what I'm doing this weekend off the top of my head. I think I'm looking forward to the first weekend and a few weekends of doing nothing. So yes, that's my weekend.
0: Put the feet up, dude. Yes. Relax, enjoy it. Yes. We'll see who wins this thing.
1: I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know.
0: On that on that note, thanks again for joining us for another episode of Hidden God. We'll be back with you next time. We're going to talk about preaching Christ in the culture and look at Acts chapter 17. Hope you can join us for that. In the meantime, like us on our website. You can find us, Hidden God, on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify. There's many other um, means and avenues to which you can find us. Follow us on Instagram at Tulsa Bible. Love to keep catch up with you. Thanks so much.